Rick and Rochelle are both home with the sinus cold thing that's going on. So yeah, I've been praying over them. Um, so over the Christmas, well, let me pray. Let me pray first, and then we'll jump in. Father God, you have given us so much through your word, Lord Jesus, and we just come before you now to open our hearts and our minds um, and just ask that you will just feed us through this passage this morning. We ask that you will feed our soul, be with us, um, and allow us to hear you. Uh, you have something for us, and um, we just pray that we are open to receive it. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So over the Christmas break this time, um, I had the opportunity to see the summer blockbuster. And I know that sounds weird, but I saw the summer blockbuster Wonder Woman. Um, as a family, here we are on the airplane getting ready to take off to go to Chicago, and we got delayed long enough that I got to watch the entire movie of Wonder Woman while we were sitting on the tarmac waiting to go. Um, but every seat had its own little screen, so I actually got to watch something that wasn't a cartoon <laughs> or a kid's movie, um, which is the only movie I have seen in the theaters for the last eight years. So I assume that everybody else has actually seen this movie. No? No? Oh my goodness, it was the summer blockbuster. Well, <laughs> and I thought I was the only one who hadn't seen it. If you haven't seen it, go now. See it. It's awesome. But, okay, Rochelle has even seen this movie, by the way, so you should all go see it. Her aunt took her to go see the movie. Um, the movie actually begins with Diana in modern day, and she is looking at a photograph of her and a few other people um, that looks like it was taken during World War I. And so then the movie itself is told through this flashback of essentially the story behind the picture, where that came from. And she gets this picture from Wayne Industries. So you see this connection between her and Bruce Wayne. Um, and he says in a note, I want to hear your story someday. So we then see the story behind this picture. Like I said, it's a flashback. So most of the movie is actually taking place during World War I. Diana has learned that um, Ares, who's the son of Zeus, um, who became very jealous of Zeus's love for humanity, Ares is determined to bring about conflict and war with humanity. And Diana then goes on this pursuit of trying to find Ares to destroy him, to protect humanity. There's a scene that's, I would say, part of the pivotal part of the movie. And it actually almost brought me to tears. It was that much of a pivotal part of the movie. And it's about in the middle, so I'm not going to spoil the end scene. Um, but 
I'll describe it in a second, but up until this point, Diana has been kind of a fish out of water. She, as a kid, is being raised on this Amazon-protected island where she wants to learn how to fight. She wants to be a warrior. But her mother holds her back and says, no, I'm, I'm not gonna, I don't want you to do that. And her aunt instead says, I'm going to teach you how to be a warrior. So behind her mother's back, Diana learns to fight. And one day, this officer ends up having a plane crash that is right there at the island. And that's Steve Trevor. He is then being pursued by the Germans, and now Diana's eyes are open that the war is going on, that Ares is out there, and he has caused all of this struggle and turmoil and conflict. And you then have the battle with the Germans and the Allies happening here. Steve takes her from the island in hopes, you know, he takes her so that she can put forth her mission. And like I said, she's been kind of a fish out of water. There's a funny scene that is her trying to find 1915-ish era clothing because she's wearing the Amazon you know, Wonder Woman clothing up until that point. So there's this really funny scene where she's always trying, she's trying to kick and she's trying to maneuver and, and figure out what's going on with the clothing of the era. And then we get to that pivotal point of the movie. Steve and Diana actually make it to the front, to the battlefield. And they're up there in the trench with the allies. As she's absorbing in the bombs going off in the background and the, the men, the soldiers running around, she hears this woman in the trench with her baby crying out that the Germans have taken over her town and the Germans have been starving the people in their town. Now, Diana knows that this is Ares. This is the conflict, and so she believes that he's out there doing this. Steve and Diana get into this argument about what to do. And he starts to then describe the impossible. He says that they are in the trench right in front of what's considered no man's land. This is the spot of land between the German troops and the allies. Machine guns are aimed at every place. And the battalion that's been there, they've been fighting for nearly a year and have literally made no progress forward. However, Diana is still determined. She's determined to help the people. And this is the moment that starts to tear me up because she says, I'm going to do this. I don't care. I'm here. Somebody has to do something. And you see her start to pull herself then out of the trench. And she's back in her Amazon clothing, and you see her wristbands, and she's got her shield. She gets out of the trench, and we follow this one bullet that comes towards her from the other side, and she just deflects it. The bullets are firing, and she's just moving forward. 
deflecting all the bullets. What inspired me about this was the compassion and the determination that she had to help the people of this town. She had an understanding of the spiritual world that allowed her to see past this current reality and to see that even though the impossible was what was in front of her, that there was something more that could happen. And her actions, in the end, actually liberate this town. So, what does she have to do <laughs> with our sermon today? To me, it's about being radical. Taking actions forward, driven by an understanding of the spiritual world, spiritual world despite current seemingly impossible circumstances. As Frank mentioned last week, Rick spoke very much about Mary and Martha and Jesus' message being radical. He told Martha in the midst of her anger towards her sister for not helping when Jesus, the distinguished guest, and his disciples came to the house, that Mary was choosing the right action by sitting at his feet. Jesus' response to Martha challenged the social and gender norms of the day. As Rick said, when social convention takes you one way and God takes you another, you go with God. Our passage that we're going to look at this morning is also about being radical with God and radical for God and radical in God. So let's turn to Acts 4. And while you're turning there, let me just say, um, Rick and I have been tag-teaming, obviously, over the last few months since Pastor Ernie's been on the sabbatical. Um, and we often work on our sermons at the same time, but we don't talk about what we are doing. <laughs> um, often until either like the night before or even the morning of we are doing this sermon. So when I found out that Rick was talking about being radical with God, you know, and how Jesus had a radical message, I thought, oh, great. <laughs> That's exactly what my message was going to be. <laughs> and oftentimes, I take longer than Rick does to write a sermon. So I had been working on this, and then he had been working on it. Um, and so we were working on it concurrently, but separately. And at one point, I actually thought, Rick did that. I should just scrap it and come up with something else. And then I really thought about it and said, you know what? If God put this on my heart, I need to talk about it. Even though Rick talked about it. Because there's something about this that I feel like I need to hear, but we need to hear. So instead of scrapping it, I thought, you get a sermon series <laughs> on being radical for God. Okay, so we're going to look at Acts 4. And the superheroes, to bring it back to that theme, superheroes of our faith. We have Peter and John. At this point, Acts 4, 
Let me just read. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before us healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to, my, to men by which we must be saved. So where we are in Acts here is that Peter and John have just been seized and thrown in jail. They were in the midst of a crowd speaking to them. And up come the priests and the temple guard and the Sadducees. They came up to the crowd and were listening to what Peter and John were saying. And we know in verse 4-2 that the priests, the, the um, captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees were disturbed by what Peter and John were saying. So this group of people decided to throw Peter and John in jail for the night. If this superhero of a faith story were told in flashback, we might catch glimpses of Peter and John walking with Jesus, observing Jesus' miracles, sitting at his feet, having discussions about the kingdom of God. In the flashback, we would see that Peter and John uh, were among the inner circle of the 12 disciples. Peter, we might see him walking on water with Jesus. We might also see John standing before Jesus at the cross being told to take care of Jesus' mother. We most definitely would see Peter on that, that night of Jesus' betrayal being very fearful running and hiding, and even denying three times that he knew Jesus. And then we would see Jesus forgiving him three times for that denial. We might also see the disciples hiding in the upper room, mourning the loss of their friend who had just been taken up before them in a cloud which hid Jesus from their sight. 
While they were in that upper room, we could see the violent wind and, that came from heaven to fill the whole house with tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, filling them with the Holy Spirit. And as part of the flashback, we would also see what led up to Peter and John being thrown in jail for the night, seized by the priests, the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. Hours before what we have just read in Acts, we have Acts 3. Peter and John were actually headed into the temple for afternoon prayer. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, prayer time. High traffic area, lots of people headed into the temple. Beggars are lining the streets, hoping for some act of kindness, some money given to them so maybe they could get something to eat. And here, Peter and John come across what we know is a 40-year-old-plus man who had been brought to the temple gate, which was called Beautiful, by others in order to beg for the day. He was brought by others because he had been crippled since birth, so he couldn't even get himself there. And this man asked Peter and John, probably like he had asked every other person walking by them, for money. We can read in 3-4 that both Peter and John looked straight at the man's face and demanded that that man look back at him. Peter then delivers what I think is a pretty famous line. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. He didn't give him money. He gave him the ability to walk. Peter then takes the beggar, this crippled man, by the hand and lifts him up. Instantly, it, we read, the man's feet and ankles become strong enough and he's able to walk. Now, this man couldn't even get to the temple by himself. He had to have people carry him. And now he's walking. But not only walking, we read that he also jumps and leaps around the temple courts. Now what's interesting about this event is it didn't happen in isolation. It happened at 3 o'clock in the afternoon during prayer time when there are thousands of people to witness it. Put a pin in that because that's important. <laughs> the people who came to the temple, they came daily. And so it is likely that they saw this man on a regular basis sitting there begging for money. I know for myself, I live in Pasadena, and I've lived in Pasadena for 20 years. And there, for 20 years, have been the same homeless people standing at the 210 in Lake Avenue. I recognize them. I worry about them when they're not there. I pray for them as I'm going by. I give them money. <laughs> I've given them food. Because it's the same people on a day-to-day -day basis. Now, if I recognize these people, in this 
situation, they had to have recognized the beggars as well. Even if they were half paying attention, they would probably know who these people were because they were there on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. So for 40 years, this man was crippled. So when he was told by Peter, stand up, walk in the name of Jesus, this is huge. The people were then filled with wonder and amazement at what had actually happened to him. And the crowds then became very astonished, we read. They asked, how could you do this? You know, they saw this man. He couldn't even get to the temple. How could you do this? And Peter has the most wonderful response in Acts 3.12. Why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? No. In fact, it was through the power of Jesus. Peter and John then tell them about who Jesus is. He tells them Jesus is God's servant. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the author of life. He's the Messiah. He is a speaker for God, a prophet. He is, came to restore the people to God. And he was raised from the dead. Peter and John are telling this to 5,000 plus people. So at this point then, we return to the beginning of Acts 4, where Peter and John are telling all of the people about Jesus, the exciting things that Jesus has done, who he is. The priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees start listening to Peter and John. Now, at this point, I always ask myself, what got them thrown in jail? (laughs) You know, what was it that they said that actually led the priests, the Sadducees, and the temple guard to say, oh no, we're not having that, and throw them in jail? They heard something in what Peter and John was saying that led them to say they're breaking the law and they need to be arrested. And what they heard was that Peter and John were teaching false doctrine. They were convinced that the resurrection of Jesus was false. And therefore, Peter and John were spreading false doctrine. The Sadducees, historically, have been known for not believing in resurrection of any kind. And here, Peter and John are telling the people about resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. And not only that, they're saying, we witnessed it. Now, if you don't believe that resurrection can happen, you've got two people saying they've witnessed it and nobody else has seen this. They're just turning them aside, saying, no way. Of course, this must be false. So then they were disturbed by the false teaching and threw them in jail so that they could be brought for a hearing the next day. This hearing 
would then be conducted by the Sanhedrin. So, who's the Sanhedrin? For context, um, this is Roman-controlled Judea. Jerusalem is in the center of Judea, and the Sanhedrin have two responsibilities. The first is the politics, or the law, and the second is religious responsibility, of which the high priest was the president of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the local authority who tried cases locally, but reported cases to the central authority, or back to Rome. Rome at this time also reserved the right to interfere if necessary, and Rome also needed to try capital cases. This is why Jesus was brought before Pilate in order to be crucified. Um, the Sanhedrin tended to oversee the civil and religious matters. But they were the upholders of the law in Jerusalem. The captain of the temple guard who arrested Paul, I'm sorry, Peter and John, he's the next in rank to the high priest. The Sadducees, again, who contributed to arresting them, they were this Jewish sect whose members were from the priestly line and they have control of the temple. This next day, in front of the Sanhedrin, we have some new participants. They were brought before the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law. We have a few specific names listed who were part of this Sanhedrin. Annas, the high priest, was actually an ex-high priest. He had been high priest from 6 to 15 AD. And he had incredible influence on the Sanhedrin, and on the Jewish members of the community. The influence also went to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. He was high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. And you might actually recognize this name because he oversaw the crucifixion of Jesus. We can read in Matthew 26.3, that the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high, high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest in some sly way and kill Jesus. So we know that name, and he's still there. <laughs> then we have John or Jonathan, and that's thought to be the son of An Ananias, who was appointed high priest in 36 AD after Caiaphas. So we've got these amazingly high people in the temple. We've got these high, high priests with a lot of power and a lot of authority who are overseeing Peter and John in this um, trial. Now here's where I then start to think about the radical part of what Peter and John are doing. And the first part of the radicalness of what they're doing in Christ is that they have courage. I've read in some of the, um, 
text that I was researching on that they also talk about it being boldness. Peter and John are brought before these chief law enforcers, the rulers, the priests, the same people Peter actually hid from on the night that Jesus was betrayed and originally arrested. Peter and John were said to be unschooled, which means that they were not rabbis. They were not teachers of the law. They were fishermen. And courageously, Peter and John stand before them, ready to account for their actions and account for their words. The Sanhedrin asked them, by what power or what name did you do this? And Peter basically is saying, bring it on. He does not waver one bit in front of the Sanhedrin, the lawmakers, the high priests. He doesn't waver. He clearly says, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. He then attacks them, makes them responsible for Jesus' death in whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. Talk about boldness. This is the guy who hid, who ran, who said, I don't know Jesus. And here he's standing in front of this authority that he was so fearful of, saying, nope, it was Jesus. Jesus's authority is what I did this through. Not only that is he quotes Psalm 118.22. What's interesting is if you look at 118.22, Peter quotes it, but he changes it ever so slightly. Acts 4.11 reads, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Now, if you read Psalm 118.22, it reads, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, I don't know the difference between a capstone and a cornerstone, but I do know that Peter accuses them, the council of the high priest, the leaders of the church, and the rulers of rejecting Jesus. That's bold. <laughs> that's courageous. And that's radical. The second radical part that I think happens here is that they show compassion. There's something that I found interesting when I was reading through this. Peter and John were actually being detained by the charges of teaching false doctrine. We read that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, responds to this. And what he says is, if we are being called to, to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was heal, healed, then it was by the name of Jesus. He didn't actually respond to the false teaching. He responded by referring to the act of kindness. This compassion for a crippled man now, this act of kindness 
again, did not happen in isolation. It happened in the high-traffic temple gate where thousands of people walked into the temple and saw this happen and believed in what Peter and John were saying. And we can read that it says the number of men who believed grew to 5,000. That's a lot of people who believed in what had just happened. The fact that the thousands of people saw this happen said that it was not a he said, he said kind of situation. This act of kindness is what they go to to talk about the charges brought up against them. And it also kind of makes me question their bringing up in front of the Sanhedrin, is kindness and compassion unlawful? 4.14 says, since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them. So the man, the crippled man, came to the court the next day. There was nothing they could say. Everyone, in 4.16, everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. The Sanhedrin had nothing to stand on in that case because so many people had witnessed this. And the Holy Spirit told Peter, don't talk about the teaching, the doctrine. Talk about the kindness and compassion of what you just did. You can't deny that this man is now walking. So compassion is that second radical point. The third radical point that I think comes up here is that Peter and John are challenging both political, so law, and religious norms. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by, much, by which we must be saved. Salvation is found only in Jesus. That is radical at this point. The political leaders thought that if they killed Jesus, they crucified him, that that would stop Jesus' teaching, and it didn't. Peter and John were standing in front of the Sanhedrin, the political and religious leaders. The high priest then tells them, don't speak any longer to anyone in this name. Don't do it. And Peter and John respond in uh, chapter 4, verse 19. Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him, meaning God? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. So to listen to the lawmakers, the leaders of the church, or do you listen to God? And to quote my husband from last week, you go with God. <laughs> now, what's also interesting is that Peter and John are standing in front of supposedly godly men. These are the priests. These are the religious leaders. 
They are men who know the law. They argue, they debate, they even have the Torah memorized. And yet, they missed it the first time when Jesus was walking on earth. They missed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, God is about redemption. And he gives them, even, a second chance. This is their second chance to hear what Peter or what uh, Jesus did through Peter and John. And there, Peter and John are standing in front of them, challenging the law, pointing out that salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, and inviting them to actually return to listening to God. Now, I cannot help about thinking about today and our current political climate, our current religious climate, and this passage calling for us as followers of Christ to act differently, to be ambassadors, as you've heard me preach about before, to seek what is in God's eyes, to love, to have compassion, and to heal the hurting. I don't think it matters what political affiliation you have, but being radical for Christ and seeing what is right in God's eyes mean that we need to at least question what's happening today in our current way of doing things. We need to question, am I listening as a follower of Christ? Listening first and foremost to God? I personally need to act differently than the world. I need to act as Jesus did. I need to be focused on doing the will of the Father as Jesus did. I need to have a sacrificial life. Jesus came to give of himself for us. I need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, as Jesus says, is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I need to show mercy to those that I meet, just as Jesus did. He healed the blind, the lame, the leper, he ate dinner with sinners, the tax collectors. We saw Jesus treat the woman at the well differently. Last week, we heard about treating Mary differently. I need to focus on those who are overlooked and vulnerable in society, the poor, the lame. I need to stop and see that crippled man on my way to church. I need to speak about forgiveness and reconciliation with God. To me, those things are a radical message, challenging our political and even our religious norms. It's not enough for us to sit back and be silent. I cannot help seek speaking about what I have seen and heard. As I was researching 
this. I came across a man by the name of Casper Ten Boom. Anybody ever heard of him? What's that? Ten Boom, yes. He was recently honored by Yad Vashem. He's considered one of the righteous among the nations. The righteous among the nations are non-Jews who took great risks to save Jews during the Holocaust. The rescue for the righteous among the nations took many forms, and the righteousness came from many different nations, religions, and walks of life. What they have in common is that they protected their Jewish neighbors at a time when hostility and indifference prevailed. Caspar Tenboom was an 84-year-old Dutch Christian who was arrested for harboring Jews in his home during World War II. Reports that I read noted and stated that, that when he was arrested by the Gestapo, the Gestapo chief had sympathy because he was an old man. He was 84. And had said to him that you can go home instead of being sent to a concentration camp uh, so that he could go home and live out his life and die in his own bed. But this chief needed Tenboom's assurance that he would not cause any more trouble. The reports said that Tenboom responded by saying, if I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door to any man in need who knocks. When asked if he knew he would die for helping the Jews, he replied, it would be an honor to give my life for God's chosen people. Casper Tenboom died at the hospital, the Hague Municipal Hospital, 10 days after he was arrested and thrown in a concentration camp. That's being radical. That's going against the political and the norm of the day. So, how will you be radical in Christ? Being radical in Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, you can have courage and be bold at times where you might originally have felt fear. Being radical in Christ, you will be led to acts of kindness and compassion for those who are marginalized and overlooked in society. Being radical in Christ, you may be asked to challenge political and religious norms, to choose to listen to the law or even the leaders of the church on one hand, or to listen to God on the other. And I'm going to choose listening to God every time, all day long. Now, returning to my illustration of Wonder Woman here. She climbs out of the trench. She sheds that 1915-ish clothing. She exposes her wristbands and her shield. We too, as we are radical for Christ, go out into the world with an armor of God on us. We have a belt of truth 
buckled around our waist. We have a breastplate of righteousness. We even have a shield of faith. We have a helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We're going out there equipped because we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we have this armor of God on us. We can be radical. We can stand up for Christ. We can try, yes. <laughs> we can be radical. And I don't know about you, but I cannot help speaking about what I have seen and heard. Amen. Okay, Lucas. Let me pray for us as he comes forward. Father God, you are the ultimate, ultimate healer, redeemer, and salvation is found in you. Lord Jesus, help us not to be silent, but to speak what we have heard, to talk to others about you, to talk about your love, to talk about who you are, and to act differently because of that. Lord Jesus, fill us with strength, with courage, and compassion. As we go through these doors this morning, we pray that you are with us with that hedge of protection around us, knowing that we are doing your will. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>